You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Center Studios of Messiah College, the beacon of pedagogical innovation in Grantham, Pennsylvania. This is the Wave Improvement Leads Home Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, returning from his sabbatical, <laughs> here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome to episode 47 of the Wave Improvement Leads Home Podcast. So, Drew, speaking of the sabbatical, you flew solo in our last episode, uh, rocking the airwaves. The Twitter feeds are buzzing about Drew's uh, performance last week. I even saw Drew putting up a uh, Kristen Bell um, <laughs> gif yep, yep. on Twitter. Anyway, you flew solo last episode. It was a great discussion of Native American DNA and Elizabeth Warren. Great interview with Cherokee historian Julie Reed. How do you feel now that you have an entire episode under your belt? Are you, you're not going to be branching out, starting a new uh, podcast yourself, right? A spinoff? We don't have a spinoff in the pipeline yet. You know, it feels good. It was a lot of fun preparing my own commentary. Uh, great opportunity to kind of do my best John Fia impression. But, you know, I also have to say I was definitely a lot more nervous during the recording uh, session. But, you know, it would be fun to take the reins once in a while, but I'm definitely glad yeah, that you're well, back. Well, it, sound, it sounded great. I listened to a little of it. Um, I noticed you snuck that blooper reel in at the end. <laughs> I would have never have known if you hadn't told me about that. But uh, today, Drew, we are revisiting the subject of history pedagogy. And that's obviously a topic near and dear to our hearts here at the podcast. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about who our guest is before we formally introduce him in a few minutes? Well, Nicholas Proctor is a prolific author of role-playing-based historical games, a methodology known as reacting to the past. And they're designed to teach primary documents and historical contingency to undergraduate students. I actually first saw Dr. Proctor deliver an overview of this particular pedagogical approach at a conference. And as someone who is an avid game player myself, uh, both tabletop and role-playing games, I was very interested. You are, you know, I was just, I was just thinking here as you were commenting. How many guests have we gotten because you've gone to conferences? You are a real jet setter, Drew. I know. You also have some teaching experience under your belt. So have you ever used any kind of role-playing games in the classroom when you teach history? Not not really. You know, I have used some kind of microscopic role-playing simulations. You know, I have students simulate a diary entry or, or write a letter to a historical person. Right. Uh, these sorts of things to help students engage with primary documents in a little bit more of a personal way and maybe a little bit less of an academic way, but nothing with the depth uh, and scope of reacting to the past. Although I will say one of my most memorable middle school history experiences was uh, a similar kind of in-class simulation in which we were all 
uh, representatives at the uh, First Continental Congress Ooh. representing individual colonies, and we had a kind of list of goals that were particular to our colony, and the only way to, to win was to get enough points that yeah. were weighted depending on what you were what your colony was invested in. Wow. So, so, you know, that was a lot of fun, and I, I, w- I would love to continue. I'm really excited for the interview because I'd love to continue to explore the possibility of bringing this into some of my teaching. Rasking to the Past is designed specifically for college students, right? right? So it's really interesting, yeah. How about you, John? Are you, uh, are you traditional in your teaching? Well, I've tried this stuff when the, earlier in my career, and it never seemed to work very well. So I kind of gave up on it. But, you know, after learning more about reacting to the past and preparing for this episode, I wonder if it's time that I should, you know, maybe maybe um, our guest today can teach an old dog some new tricks and I can revisit these kinds of ideas in my classroom. Um, I think I need to take things one step at a time, though. Right now, I am working on a course on the age of Hamilton, which will incorporate some of Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical in it. I'm scheduled to teach it in the fall of 2019, so we'll see how things go. Maybe I could incorporate some reacting-type stuff when I teach about, you know, Hamilton and Jefferson and their so-called cabinet duels mm-hmm. in the 1790s. But we'll get to Nick Proctor soon, Drew. Tell us first how listeners can connect with the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Well, the Way of Improvement Leads Home is a proud member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Head to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. Our podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, Margaret Graves, and Gretchen Adams. And as always, many thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. We are also sponsored by the Lindhurst Group. History is a critical but often overlooked part of nurturing and developing vital communities. Are you trying to build stronger communities through your history organization or museum? Do you wonder if your organization is working as efficiently as possible? Bob Beatty and the Lindhurst Group can help with organizational assessments and in-depth strategic planning. Over his 20-year career in nonprofits in the public sector, Bob Beatty has honed proven strategies to engage communities deeply in the work of history organizations and museums. Contact Bob at lyndhurstgroup.org. That's lindhurstgroup.org to learn how the Lindhurst Group can help you help make your institution the asset your community wants and needs. And if you want to become a sponsor of the show, please head over to thewaveimprovement.com and click support. And we've been, we've been pushing this, this second half of the fifth season. We really, really want everyone to go out, find a friend and bully them into liking (laughs) our podcast. Tell them that you're going to cut them off. You're, you're canceling the friendship until they subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever kind of podcatcher they're using on their phone or uh, computer. But really, in all seriousness, word of mouth is the way to make the podcast spread. But if you do want to follow us on social media, feel free, at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. That's on Twitter and Facebook. And, of course, the positive reviews on iTunes or Stitcher will help boost our podcast to the top of the recommended feeds. Yeah, as always, Drew, thank you for all those who listen, all those who download, all those who share, all those who even support us through our Patreon campaign. Uh, We really appreciate it. I know patrons kind of come and go, uh, you know, here and there, but especially those who kind of have stuck with us through this and uh, continue to see the value of what we're doing. So uh, we can't do it without you. Thank you for all of you who support what we do here. So before we get to our interview with Nick Proctor, 
You have some commentary for us, John. I love to lecture. I am better at lecturing than I am at leading discussions, although I like the intimacy of the small group as well, and I think I've gotten better at such discussions over the course of my career. When I lecture, I try to give my students their money's worth every time I step behind the lectern. As the comedian John Stewart once said of Bruce Springsteen, I try to empty the tank every lecture. I usually work up a small sweat and can count on losing a few pounds every semester. I want my students to know that there is something at stake in learning about the past. Let's face it. A lecture is a kind of performance. I gesture and yell and sing and run around the room when I lecture because I am passionate about the material I am covering. I love to learn new things about the past, and I want my students to be just as excited as I am when they encounter an idea for the first time. Lecturing also suits my rather intense personality, and I do have a rather loud voice. Lecturing as a form of performance also keeps my students interested. A good lecture should invite students to engage with the story the lecturer is telling. Such storytelling is part entertainment, but I also hope to bring an analytical component to my lecturing. I am always trying to take my students somewhere. I want them to understand why I am choosing to emphasize some things and downplay others. I want them to understand a lecture as an interpretive exercise and hopefully get students to think critically about what I am saying. I want them to move beyond just facts and to understand significance and be aware of the interpretive signposts embedded in the lecture. I want students to think about the material in a different way or ask new questions about themes in American history that they think they know something about. Most of my lectures are interspersed with questions and student participation. I use PowerPoint, but I do not place everything I'm going to say on my slides. I use PowerPoint primarily for images that I want the students to consider. I ban laptops, cell phones, and tablets in the classroom. One of the things I have enjoyed about teaching at Messiah College is our lecture discussion format for teaching the United States Survey course. Students engage with two 50 to 60 minute lectures a week and spend a third hour in a discussion of a primary source in what we call seminars. Seminars are designed for students to ask questions about the lecture and engage more deeply in the craft of history through the analysis of a document. In my seminars in the pre-1865 U.S. History Survey class, we read things like Anne Hutchinson's trial transcript, Ben Franklin's autobiography, Thomas Paine's Common Sense, Frederick Douglass's slave narrative, the U.S. Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, Martha Ballard's Midwife's Diary, William Lloyd Garrison's The Liberator, John C. Calhoun's Defense of Slavery, and Lincoln's Second Inaugural. Many experts in pedagogy have argued that student learning does not and cannot take place in a large lecture hall. Instead, professors must abandon the lecture, or at least limit the amount of time they do it, in exchange for small group discussion, active learning, close reading of primary sources, or something similar to the reacting to the past model of teaching history. I have largely ignored the criticisms of the lecture. Perhaps I have ignored them at my own peril. Perhaps I only think my students are learning something from my lectures. 
While it is true that most history education takes place through the close reading and discussion of documents, I also think that a large lecture, for reasons that ancient historian Barry Strauss mentions in a 2009 piece at the website Minding the Campus, is still valuable. I'll let Strauss explain, quote, Lecturing is a democratic activity. Communication in a democracy means persuasion. It also means stepping outside the comfort zone of a circle of friends or acquaintances and speaking to strangers. Democracies cannot afford the luxury of speaking only to small groups. They require speaking to the crowd. With speech comes danger, and crowds can fall for demagogues. A good lecture course educates students against just that danger because it gives them the leisure to evaluate the lecturer's words. Discussion sections provide just that opportunity, since they allow the student to ask follow-up questions about the lecture. Usually, the interlocutor is a graduate student teaching assistant, a less daunting figure to challenge than the professor. Unquote. Lecturing is part of the democratic process. I like it. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, a company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So... At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable. It's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Dr. Nicholas Proctor is professor of history at Simpson College and the editorial board director at Reacting to the Past. He is a historian of the 18th and 19th century South, African-American history in history, game design, and development. Proctor is the author of several books, including Bathed in Blood, Hunting and Mastery in the Old South, and has written several Reacting to the Past games published with W.W. Norton, and the Reacting to the Past Consortium Press. Our guest today is Nick Proctor, professor of history at Simpson College and the chair of the editorial board at Reacting to the Past. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Now, many of our listeners probably have never heard of reacting to the past. So, you know, first tell us, what is it? You know, what what is this kind of pedagogical method that you are such a supporter of? Sure. Reacting to the Past is a series of immersive historical role-playing games. Probably a lot of your viewers are familiar with with single-day simulations or mock trials or debate and that sort of thing. The thing that's different about reacting is we usually keep the class in reacting mode for two or sometimes three weeks. Wow. So the, so the students have a lot of time to really get immersed into their roles 
and into the historical world that the game is set in. Now, tell me a little bit about sort of how reacting to the past, you know, what's its history? In doing a little research for this episode, I learned a little bit more about Mark Carnes, a, a history professor at Barnard College, and his book, Minds on Fire, How Role Immersion Games Transform College. But maybe you could tell us, you know, what is Carnes trying to do? What was his vision for this project? What are the kind of intellectual roots and history of reacting to the past as a pedagogical tool in the history classroom? Sure. Well, well, Carnes tells a good story, which is probably true, where <laughs> he's walking to his seminar he teaches it at Barnard. So Barnard uses the Columbia University great books right. approach to, to some of its lower level courses. So he's going to run a seminar with very, very smart students about an excellent book. And he's not looking forward to it. In fact, he's, he's anticipating being sort of bored by it. Yeah. And this causes him to, to really do an assessment of, of what's the problem because Everything should work. You've got great students and you've got a great book, but it, uh, but all the discussions were sort of flat. So he started experimenting with game-based learning almost as an act of, of mid-career desperation mm. because he was having these classes that should have been good that weren't good. And he didn't start small. He sort of went big. Yeah. And his first results were so positive, he really recognized that he had stumbled upon a pedagogy that was amazingly effective at energizing students. And this was in the late 90s. He really devoted most of his subsequent academic career to working on the series and expanding the series. And then would you say that his book, Minds on Fire, is kind of the advertisement for this, the, the the explanation for why this is effective. You know, what is that book about? Yeah, well, I think that he, being a good professor, tried to sort of intellectualize something yeah. that he was experiencing at a gut level. Right. And he was like asking questions. One, why were my classes before I started using reacting so lame? And <laughs> two, why were my classes once I did start using reacting so good. Yeah. And so a lot of the, the beginning of the book, he, he looks at the history of pedagogy in American universities and tries to charge the history of the well-intentioned efforts that were made that made education kind of boring and lifeless. Mm. And the, the counter narrative to that of ways in which college students have engaged in transgressive behavior to try to make college exciting. Yeah. yeah. And, and then the, the rest of the book is about how reacting tries to make the educational aspect of college as exciting and engaging as all of the extracurricular parts. Right. So when you say transgressive behavior, you're talking about kind of frat parties, you know, uh, you know, all the things that college students do, you know, getting drunk on the weekend, so forth, because it's his argument because they're not being kind of stimulated in the classroom. So they find all these other ways. Um, I don't know, maybe even sports or something like that. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, that's part of his argument. Yeah. I, I think the other part of his argument is college students crave fun. Yeah. Uh, and part of the way that they find fun is by doing things that grownups don't like them to do right. and by doing things that are exciting and by doing things that are sort of forbidden. 
Yeah. And a, a well-designed reacting game gives you license to do things that you would never ordinarily do in a classroom. Right. And this energizes a lot of students and, and it gives them the ability to, to be creative, to be spontaneous, but to do so within a historical setting. Yeah. So for example, the first question that you're often asked when you're running a reacting game is, how can I kill someone? Right. right. Uh, and, and anybody that's used more than a couple of these games knows that the question is coming. The thing that reacting allows you to do in a lot of the games is to have an answer other than, well, of course you can't do that. Yeah. Uh, instead, the answer is, well, what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to, one, tell me why you should be allowed to kill this person. Mm-hmm. Two, you're going to have to do some historical research to figure out how that could actually be done. Right. And three, you're going to have to recognize that it would probably be easier to just outvote them rather than yeah. than trying to take them off the board with violence. And then most students actually don't follow through with their assassination plan. <laughs> but But simply knowing that that's on the board is a possibility makes a, a real suggestion yeah. that things can happen in this classroom that don't ordinarily happen in classrooms. Right. And that's part of what makes reacting games so engaging. Let's get into the nuts and bolts here. Give us a quick example of a reacting to the past game. How are the students preparing? How are you as the professor preparing them? Kind of what happens? You mentioned two to three weeks. Is that a normal length for a game? Maybe take a few minutes and just kind of walk us through what your role is as the professor and how you prepare the students to engage in these conversations and debates and everything associated with the game. Sure. So for an average reacting game, I'll use the example of a game that I designed, which is about the secession crisis before the American Civil War. Okay. So in that game, the game is set in the Kentucky State Legislature. So the thing that I really wanted to get across in that game is the complexity of secession. Right. So leading into the game, you have two or three class sessions that tend to be pretty traditional. Uh, they're reading a historical context essay that's setting up the secession crisis. They're reading a selection of curated historical documents mm-hmm. that are all in the game book that are giving different period perspectives on the questions around secession. So you can do those depending upon the size of your classes, more of a lecture, more of a discussion. And this looks very traditional in a lot of ways. The things that's different is about halfway through that process, you give the students the role sheets. And these give them a biography and objectives, and they lay out what their assignments and responsibilities are in the game. And this changes the way that the students are reading the documents. They start to read the documents as partisans Mm -hmm. rather than as disinterested, detached people of the 21st century. And this is because the documents you explain to them as the instructor, all of these documents are really an arsenal of potential arguments that they can make in the course of the game. And in order to succeed in the game, they've got to understand the world of the game. So they really need to understand the historical context. So so once you get them to that point, that's when 
your hat as an instructor comes off and your hat as a game master really comes on. And when you, when you change into game mode, you usually move to the back of the room and it totally becomes a student-centered classroom. Just about every reacting game has a student or several students who act as a kind of a presiding officer. So in this case, there's a speaker of the legislature, but there's also the governor of the state. And the game book and the role sheets, though, have laid out different issues that they're going to need to contend with on the first couple of sessions. One of the, the points of the Kentucky game is the degree to which the secession crisis is accelerated by events. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of every subsequent session, you temporarily put your instructor hat back on and read them a little news brief about things that have happened elsewhere in the United States over the time that's passed since the previous session. Right. Now, now one of the things that really gets students engaged is that you start weaving things that they have done into the news briefs. And I ah, think that this is yeah. really important because it, it values student agency. It's not a reenactment. They're not just going through a script of stuff that has to happen because historically it happened. Most of the things that are happening in the U.S. are beyond their control because they're just in Kentucky. But let's say that they build a bunch of forts on the border of Ohio. Well, then the government of Ohio is going to do something to, to react to that. And I think that that's one of the key things that draws students in is the game gives them a real sense of agency, that they're able to affect the course of events. So in that game, as it goes on, they, they will debate and vote on a number of different laws coming before the legislature. And the climax of the game is often a state sovereignty convention where they decide, is Kentucky going to affirm its loyalty to the union, secede from the union, or declare its official neutrality? The third option is actually what they historically did. Yeah. Which is baffling to students until they play the game. Right. And and then it starts looking like not a really bad idea. Yeah. So I, I think that that's one of the powerful things about reacting as a pedagogy is ideas or options or historical decisions that they're previously pretty dismissive of. Like, why would anybody do that? That's right. that that's gotta be the dumbest idea. When they're in the world of the game and they play through it in role, things that seemed impossible or things that seemed wrongheaded really start to seem legitimate to them. Yeah. And history becomes about contingency and history becomes about options. And it's not the big book of fate that right. they have to memorize. What happens if the game ends and it, they do not come to the conclusion in the way that it actually played out in real life. Yeah. Well, at the end of every game for at least one class session, you, you put your instructor hat firmly back on and you debrief the game, right? The debriefing is where most of the learning really gets locked down. And in terms of ahistorical outcomes in the game, I think that one of the most powerful things that students get in terms of understanding historical causation 
is you can talk about what historically happened and then ask them, well, why do you think they did that mm. and you did this? Yeah, it's great. Um, and, and them going back and forth between the game reality and the historical reality really shows that and, – and when you talk to them a year, two years, three years later, this really sticks. They really understand what the issues were, so they understand what the possibilities were. And then they really understand why what happened happened. Yeah. Not because it had to happen, but because people operating with imperfect information made a series of decisions that made sense to them yeah. that in retrospect maybe were a horrible series of self-destructive decisions, but it sounded really good at the time. Wow. Yeah, that's great. As you're talking about this issue of secession and, and the Civil War, it strikes me that you know, this is an issue that is inflected with racial tension, right? How do you manage a game where, from where we stand today, there, there is a kind of right and wrong, or at least, a, you know, a, a very clearly less moral choice versus a, a better moral choice? How do you manage students who have to perhaps play as a pro-secessionist or, you know, I, I can, especially I'm imagining if you have a student of color in your class, how do you, how do you manage those dynamics? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and, it, and it's one that every reacting game deals with differently. The way that, that I decided to deal with it in the Kentucky game, because the thing that I really wanted them to get at was secession and to understand that. And to understand secession, you've got to understand racism. But at the same time, you don't, in, in my opinion, want to have students making overtly period racist arguments in class. You know, that, that right. can be corrosive in a whole bunch of ways. So what they have to do for my game is among part of the document set are racist elements of the secessionist and pro-slavery argument are included in there. So as part of the setup, when we get towards the end of the traditional instruction leading into the game, they take a quiz. It's just a multiple choice question quiz, but the quiz that they take is over the most racist elements of those documents. And if they score well on the quiz, they have shown their mastery of 19th century racist rhetoric which is deployed in just about every way that you can imagine in the 1850s and 60s. So in game terms, what this means is they get a token from me called the race card. Mm -hmm. So that they literally have a, a card that is the race card. The way that this translates into the game is whenever it would be politically useful or appropriate to insert a racist argument into one of the arguments that they're making, they can play the race card. They can only use it once during the game. But what that represents is they have a real stemwinder racist period speech. And so they hold the card aloft and they say, I'm playing the race card. And then sometimes I come in with my instructor's voice and I say, okay, everybody think back to those documents and recognize what he would be saying yeah. for the next 10 minutes. Right. Um, and in game terms, all that does is it doubles your vote on that one issue. So that's my way of having the racist arguments part of what the students are learning, 
but not part of what the students are enacting. Yeah. There's a problem with that, though, which has come up in a couple of classes, which is because the game is in the Kentucky legislature and everybody is more or less pro-slavery, at least in the short term, um, there's nobody to speak back to that argument. So, so nobody yeah. has the anti-racist card that they can play. And I think that some instructors and students have been frustrated by this because they, they sort of see the power of the racist argument there and they want to directly confront it. But given the setting of the game, the Kentucky State Legislature in 1860-61, nobody's really doing that in a really full-throated way. So right. it felt to me that that would be ahistorical. So in terms of confronting those ideas, all of that happens in the setup for the game, where what to a slave is the 4th of July is one of the readings. Okay. And it's also done in the debriefing of the game. Okay. Where, Frederick where, Douglass, that is, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah by yeah. Frederick Douglass. Yeah. And, and it's also done in, in the debriefing of the game. So I've really consciously tried to push it out of the role-playing and into the setup and debriefing. There are some other reacting games, though, where the authors really feel like, having those ideas in tension with one another is part of what they want to get across to the students. So an example of that is there's a game about Frederick Douglass, where Frederick mm -hmm. Douglass and his narrative are the, the center of the game. And for, for some instructors, this is very powerful and it works. Um, and, and for others, the more abstract approach, like in the Kentucky game, right really better suited for their classes. There was the, the proposed HBO show about this counterfactual Confederate in the, in the vein of man in a high castle. What if the Confederacy right, right. had won the civil war? And, you know, and I, and I really resonated with a lot of the pushback to say that like, we don't really need to feed into the fantasy of neo-Confederate thinking, especially in this moment right now. And so obviously I would never think that these aren't comparable, right? These aren't necessarily you know, the same situation, but at the same time, I have my own suspicions about the value of pretending to be a racist for the sake of a game. And then maybe that being a way, you know, kind of like you were saying to be transgressive in class. Oh, now I can be a racist this time. You know, you know what I mean? I mean, it's just at least envisioning that, that potential hypothetical. Yeah. It's a thing that we have many, many long discussions about within the reacting community. And we do not have the silver bullet to solve the problem of racism in America. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm shocked. But it is certainly something that we take very, very seriously and, and we really work on in terms of the games. So one of the things that, that's important about the games is, in addition to the game book and the rule sheets, every game also comes with a long instructor's manual that's sometimes as long as the game book. So if you have a game that deals with issues of race or sexism or homophobia or colonialism, there are always helps in the instructor's manual to give you some guidance as an instructor about how to handle those in the classroom and some options about how to handle those. Um, because, and, and the reason why we don't have hard and fast rules about it is we recognize that people know their students and they know their institutions and some things are possible at some places and they're not possible right. at other places. Yeah. Uh, you know, very early on in the reacting series, we were talking about, you know, what are the games in the series that are likely to cause problems in the classroom? And 
one of the really early reactors who works at a conservative Christian school said, well, the one that's a real problem for us is Ann Hutchinson. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and which is about the, the trial of Ann Hutchinson in Puritan New England, you know, and, and that came as a surprise to many people. But those, the issues of antinomianism are red hot on his campus. Yeah. Uh, whereas, uh, uh, whereas he said, but I would have no problem running a game about the Israel-Palestine in 1947, whereas uh, somebody teaching at a school in Manhattan, right. that would be like touching the third rail. Are there any studies, Nick, that suggest that students actually learn I mean, just generally learn or learn history better through reacting as compared to, say, the traditional lecture, the discussion course? Yeah, there are. There, there are more and more. There's actually um, a, a book that, that's full of assessment studies of reacting. Um, but uh, I think that the long and the short of it is in terms of writing, in terms of historical content, in terms of retention, it's pretty comparable to traditional methods. The place where things are really different is in terms of student empathy, in mm. terms of student engagement, in terms of the amount of time and energy that students put into things, in terms of the level of emotion that students have when they're doing reacting and that they retain afterwards. Yeah. So I, I think that reacting is a real good example of um, the depth, not breadth approach to, to history courses. It's definitely a deep dive. Yeah. And that deep dive stays with students for a long time. Uh, and uh, you do have to sacrifice content coverage in order to run a reacting game. There's just no way around that. On the flip side, students are going to remember so much of what the reacting game dealt with and in such a sophisticated way that for for me, in a lot of courses, in a lot of places, that's worth it. Right. Um, but I, I teach courses where I don't use reacting, yeah. because either because there's not a game that really fits it or because I'm really satisfied with the way that I'm achieving my learning objectives using other means. Right. So reacting is really another tool in the toolbox. Uh, it's not something where I'm like, throw out your hammer and your screwdriver. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I've got the solution to all your problems. Let's just say you're teaching a course. Let's take the Kentucky uh, reacting game, for example, that you mentioned. Let's say you're teaching a course on, say, the Civil War and Reconstruction or maybe something on, like, the 19th century South. And is the reacting game just one piece of that course, or is it the entire course, the reacting game? Yeah, almost every time that I use a game in the class, I use one game. And that one game runs for two and a half or three weeks. Okay. And there are three ways that I use them. One, which is the most common, is I use them somewhere in the middle, and I use them as a pivot. So, for example, I'm teaching a Civil War and Reconstruction class right now. So mm -hmm. we use – well, I didn't use the Kentucky game this time, actually. But if I were to use the Kentucky game, it would be to really examine – the moment of secession right. and all of the ideas that go into that and come out of that because it's, it's hugely pivotal. Um, 
I've also used games towards the beginning of the semester. And there, they also serve a kind of an icebreaker function. Mm. Because by the end of the game, everybody knows everybody else. Right. Uh, because they've been interacting endlessly in class, out of class, online. So they, they'll have a really good sense of, of who, they, who one another is and, and how to contact one another. The thing that I'm doing this time around in my Civil War class is we're running a game that I'm working on developing right now about Reconstruction. Hmm. Uh, so we're going to do that as a capstone. So that's going to ask them to look back to the antebellum, to look back to the wartime years and draw on all of that knowledge to shape the way that Reconstruction operates. How do you assess as the professor how do you grade the students? Do you grade them on how well they've mastered their role, how much they participate? Yeah, people assess the students in different ways. The The way that I tend to do it, because I'm, I know I'm pretty good at it and I'm comfortable with it, is about 80% of student grades for my reacting games come from papers that they're writing while the game is going on. Okay. Uh, because I'm pretty good at assessing their writing. I know how to assess their writing. I know how to give good feedback. The, the extra 20% is based upon their level of engagement. Okay. Um, and for this, one of the things that I usually do in the debriefing is I have students write, in addition to a personal reflection back on the game, is I ask them to identify the three other students that contributed the most to their learning either in the classroom or out of the classroom. And oftentimes this really helps me to identify students who are kind of quiet in the cut and thrust of the classroom debate. Sometimes those students are tremendously helpful and influential out of class. So I'm able to figure out who those students are and assign a grade in those terms. In terms of winning the game, I usually assign a mathematically insignificant amount of extra credit. Um, and that's really to get them going into the game at the front end, because by the time you're two or three days into it, the game logic has taken over. Yeah. And they're not really thinking about their grade first. They're right. thinking about how to do well in the game first. So you just need that little bit of sugar at the beginning to get them going. And then at the end, they, they've pretty much forgotten about it. You bring up an interesting point that I think might be helpful to our listeners. And you mentioned that they're playing the game outside of class, right? So the game right. doesn't end when the class period ends, but they can actually continue. So their homework is also playing the game. Can you kind of explain how that works? Yeah. Well, one of the things that the students are, are working on, and, and part of the thing that's great about reacting games is on the one hand, they're about big philosophical ideas, so uh, so they're talking about Calhoun and they're talking about the Constitution and all of this. They're also about back alley power politics. Uh, and those two things are working in concert through most reacting games. So if I've got a big ability to bribe somebody because I'm an important Louisville banker, I'm not going to wave that flag around in front of everybody in class. I, I'm going to need to identify people that maybe would be interested in a fabulous loan for me. So that happens outside of class. And, and it happens outside of your view as a professor. 
Now, one thing that a lot of people have done about this is they've used different online discussion tools. Slack is a really popular one among a lot of reactors mm -hmm. because people can interact in role rather than with their real identities. Right. So, um, so people do it electronically. People meet in residence halls if you're a residential school. People communicate in all of the different electronic fora. I've really avoided trying to railroad them into one particular way of interacting outside of class. I usually leave it up to students to figure that out on their own. And that my students have figured out ways to do that. One of my favorite interactions with students on this topic was running into a student on the sidewalk and she was furiously texting. And I said, oh, I bet that's about the game, right? Uh, you know, just sort of right. laughingly expecting that it wasn't. And she was like, oh, yes, absolutely. You know, I, I'm <laughs> texting about it all the time. Uh, and I And I said, well, so what have you figured out through texting other people about the game? And her, her answer was, was really golden. She said, well, we figured out that we can't figure out anything texting. So <laughs> we're trying to figure out a time that we can meet face-to-face -face so we can actually decide some things. Wow, how about that? Uh, yeah. yeah, you know, and it's sort of like, okay, meta lesson taught. Right. This whole reacting game was worth it for this student. To, to figure out that when you're dealing with complicated issues, trying to simplify those into a text is an extremely frustrating and yeah. probably ultimately futile process. So, Nick, let's just say someone's been teaching sort of traditional history courses, lecture or discussion or some kind of, you know, traditional pedagogical method, and they want to get into reacting. Can you recommend some sort of steps forward is there a particular game that's a good game to start off with you know what do you what do you have to overcome to to get involved in the reacting community and start using reacting in your classrooms yeah i i think that the games that have reached a level of being published either with ww norton or reacting consortium press mm -hmm. getting a copy of the game book and the role sheets and the instructor's manual for those and just reading through them and trying to get a sense about how they work, that that's a good way to do it. In order to get access, though, to the instructor's manuals and role sheets, because we don't want students to get access to those, um, you'll need to contact Jen Worth at the Reacting Consortium, and she can add you as a user to our online game library. Okay. Uh, so if you just Google Reacting to the Past, it'll take you to the main page and all the contact information okay. is there. The, the other thing that lots of people find useful is to go to a reacting conference because reacting conferences are unlike any other academic conference in that they are really, really fun because yeah. most of what a reacting conference is, is it's playtesting a game that you're interested in. Yeah. So 80% of the programming is doing in accelerated speed what your students would do. And I think that for most people, actually putting themselves back in the shoes of an undergraduate and playing through the game, that experience is valuable in all kinds of ways. Um, so so if, if you have the time and the resources to do that, that's what I would recommend. But I think that just looking at the books can yeah. tell you a lot. The, the third and last thing 
would be to become a member of the Reacting to the Past Faculty Lounge closed Facebook group, okay. which a number of professors have become members of Facebook just so they can use, okay. get access to the faculty lounge. Yeah. And it, it has about 2,000 members now. And if you're using a game for the first time or you're thinking about using the game, you can just post on there and people from all kinds of different institutions and levels of familiarity with reacting are going to give you free advice. Now, you know, our, our time's just about up here, but one more question. So I sometimes will stand up in front of my class like I did today with my one of my upper division history classes, and there's 16 kids sitting there, and at least seven or eight of them don't speak. I, I can't even imagine them playing a game like this if I were to introduce it. Does the game sort of, do you find the game kind of brings out these kinds of students, engages them more? Especially, you know, in my department, no one does reacting. So all of a sudden, you know, to kind of drop a reacting game on them. I mean, is this going to be, you know, what what are some what are some things to help me in that regard? Do you just do you just kind of play through the game and see what happens? That's a great question. I think that one of the most important ways to start off is to acknowledge that you've never done this before, right? And that you need their help in order to pull it off but that you have heard from other people that it should be really fun and engaging. I I found that students, if you sort of let them, you know, point to the co-pilot seat and say, I really need you to have your hands on the wheel, that the vast majority of them will step up. Um, That said, of those six students that are never going to say anything in your traditional class, two of them – will try to never say anything if you go into reacting mode. Okay. Uh, you know, it it is it for some people it is just not going to be yeah. good. Um but for that almost every reacting game has some kind of a non-speaking alternative role. So okay. they might you might slap them with being the historian. So if you're not going to speak or give any speeches, what you need to do instead is write an eight-page paper, which is the official history of the events that are happening in the class. In my experience, that person suddenly finds a voice, and uh, they're willing to participate in class if that's the alternative. But but (laughs) some people are legitimately so terrified of public speaking that it's just not going to happen for them. When they're writing that history, in my experience, those students are watching every minute of what is happening yeah. before them because it's so unusual and it's so engaging and fun and interesting not to belittle your lectures, which I'm sure are all of those right. things, but it's so different yeah. that they just want to watch and see what happens. Yeah. So they're going to be engaged even if it's in a kind of a passive way. Yeah, this has been fascinating. Drew, so are you going to start using reacting now in your classes? I mean, it's tempting. I mean, this is a tough thing. He's making a good sell here. Um, <laughs> thanks so much for being with us today, Nick. Our guest has been Nick Proctor. He is professor of history at Simpson College and the chair of the editorial board of Reacting to the Past. Now, what is the website again? The main website, it's 
reacting.barnard.edu. Reacting.barnard.edu. Check it out. I also did some research for the episode by looking at their YouTube page and saw a lot of cool kind of examples of this, the testimonies, but also I watched a 30-minute session on the French Revolution, which was really cool. Um, so, yeah, check that out. And, again, thanks, Nick, for joining us. This is very informative, very interesting, and hopefully you'll get some more recruits for reacting to the past. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Well, Drew, I asked you when Nick was on. You think you're going to really try to incorporate reacting into some of your classes? Well, you know, I mean, we, we said it at the top of the episode. One of my most formative experiences as a middle schooler. I mean, I literally remember one thing from my middle school history classes, and that was this game simulation of the Continental Congress that I was talking about. So... I think there's yeah. definitely a testament, as he was saying in the in, in the interview, to the fact that, yeah, you might miss some of the breadth of your coverage, but students remember what they what they go through with. You know, the, I kind of whenever I hear these, whenever I hear these stories about reacting and so forth, I always feel really guilty. Like it seems like there's a lot of good historical thinking that goes on with contingency and causation, and you're in the moment, right? And you're empathizing, and it's a big jump for someone like me who's, you know, used to, as I said in my commentary, used to kind of standing up and, and, and entertaining, you know, yeah. it's, it's very passive style learning, but um, reacting seems like it would just, I just, I don't know. For me, it's like, I know if I did it, it would just be a complete disaster, <laughs> you know, and I lose sleep over it. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know about that. I think you would, yeah, you, you'd do quite well. And, you know, as we're wrapping up the, the podcast, as always, we'd be remiss if we didn't thank Bob Beatty and the Lindhurst Group for all that they're doing, uh, both for the community and, and assisting museums and other institutions with good interpretive history, but, but also with supporting us. Next time I talk to Bob, I'm going to ask him if there's any way to bring, like, reacting to the past into the museum world. That would be really interesting conversation to have if we ever have him on. Yeah, as a, like as a summer ca- a summer camp for, yeah, for students yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. in a museum so, or something like that. So anyway. Well, Bob, well, if you're listening, yeah, keep that in mind. Well, Drew, I think that's a wrap. We done? I think we're done. Let's go we've, play. Let's go play some games. To the past, right? So we've had a we've had a video game and a simulation game, uh, two game episodes uh, this season. So it's it's definitely been an interesting uh, an interesting season so far. I think that's it though for the game episodes, at least until season six. Yeah. So thanks for listening, everybody, and may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Wave Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. The Wave Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, your podcatcher of choice, so others may more easily find this podcast. Let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. The podcast is brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Margaret Graves, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsors, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future, as well as the Lindhurst Group. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Nick Proctor. Our studio producer is Abby LaBianca. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and your host, as always, is John Fia.